Coming up this week on the Legislative Gazette, a new financial forecast released by New York Governor Kathy Hochul's budget office shows future deficits doubling next year. I'm Jim Lavoulis in for David Gustina, and the Olympic Regional Development Authority responds to a recent report raising questions about investments in its facilities. Those stories and more on the Legislative Gazette. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Twenty twenty three may be the last year in a while that New York Governor Kathy Hochul and state lawmakers don't have to worry about holding back on state spending. A new financial forecast released by the governor's budget office shows future deficits doubling next year. Karen DeWitt reports. Just over four months ago, when Governor Hochul unveiled her state budget proposal. Thank you very much. The current budget was balanced, and the projected deficit for next year was around $5 billion. We set the table for what should be one of the most prosperous times in our state's history. Now, the governor's budget office says it is nearly doubled to $9 billion, and it's rising to over $13 billion the following year. The budget office released its revised numbers earlier this month. Patrick Orecki with the Watchdog Group Citizens Budget Commission says it's the biggest gap the state has faced since the Great Recession. He says in the months between Hochul's address and the budget passage in early May, fiscal storm clouds were gathering. We knew it as the budget was being negotiated, when the budget was enacted, that there were out-year gaps on the horizon. So it was a big concern, and it's why we urged some spending restraint at the time. Lawmakers did not heed that warning. The deficit is partly a result of increased spending during the COVID-19 pandemic, fueled by a large infusion of federal relief funds sent to New York. The budget office says tax receipts are also coming in at a rate lower than anticipated. The governor has begun talking about the upcoming shortfall and how it influences her decisions about spending money now. For instance, she spoke against a bill being considered by the state assembly. It would provide health care coverage for undocumented immigrants. Hochul says the state can't afford it. The warnings about our finances are troubling, and we saw a reduction of $6 billion in the month of March from our normal tax receipts. Hochul, during her tenure, has built up the state's reserve fund. It now totals $19 billion. Orecki, with Citizens Budget Commission, credits the governor with significantly increasing that fund. But he says it's supposed to be used in a true economic downturn or an unforeseen emergency. So just using reserves to plug gaps that you built when times were good is not how you should use reserves no matter what. Citizens Budget Commission is offering some advice to the governor and lawmakers. Orecki says Hochul should be vigilant about controlling spending and should reject any new bills by the legislature that add to the state spending burden. And he says next year it's likely that the governor will be presenting a more fiscally austere state budget. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
Juneteenth, a holiday that commemorates the emancipation in 1865 of enslaved African Americans and celebrates black culture today, was observed throughout the nation this week. Around the time that the last enslaved people were freed in Texas, there were black Americans settling, farming, and raising families in the Adirondacks. Some scholars and local leaders have been digging deeper into that history and working to make the Adirondacks a more welcoming and diverse place today. North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell reports. For most of America's history as a nation, black people have either been enslaved or oppressed. By the 19th century, slavery was abolished in the North, but there were still white Northerners who owned slaves, and all freed black people lacked basic human rights. Even in the North, many black people experienced severe discrimination. In the 1840s, a man named Garrett Smith set out to change that. He owned 120,000 acres of land in the Adirondacks. By giving away parcels of that land to black American men, those men could then gain the right to vote. Paul Smith's professor, Kurt Steger, has been researching black history in the Adirondacks. He recently presented some of those findings to the Adirondack Park Agency. The basic idea was to bring people of diverse backgrounds onto the land to live together and build communities out of mutual respect as neighbors and facing common challenges, which I think actually fits the theme of the Adirondack Park now as well. But it was uh, much more ambitious back then. That ambitious settlement became known as Timbuktu. Steger has been plotting where exactly those black settlements were in the Adirondacks. He showed the APA maps of those plots around the region. At least half of North Elba and much of St. Armand was black owned in the 1850s. There's the town of Franklin with Vermontville and uh, Bloomingdale just below it and all the way up to Loon Lake and beyond up into Belmont. So it was huge. About half of this landscape was Black-owned. Life in the Adirondacks was not easy back then, especially for Black people. Many eventually moved out of the area, but some stayed and raised their families in the Adirondacks. There are descendants of that Timbuktu settlement still in the region today. Another aspect of Steger's research has focused on place names. He explained to the APA about learning of an offensive name of a brook just north of Saranac Lake. Years ago, I was in on Chiota. The red star shows uh, the Paul Smith's College property. And I was talking to a friend who said, oh, that little brook right there, that's called N-word brook. I thought, wow, that's, you know, not only offensive, but mysterious. How could that happen in a place like this? Steger believes the brook was named for the skin color of a dozen or so black families that lived in the area. So he and some other folks worked to change that name. They got support from students, faculty, and staff at Paul Smith College, as well as the Vermontville Town Council and county officials. They wrote to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names and were successfully granted permission to change the name to John Thomas Brook. Thomas was one of the first settlers of Timbuktu. He later sold his original plot of land, but moved back to the Vermontville area with his family. Thomas bought 150 acres of land where he grew vegetables and raised cows and sheep. John Thomas spent the rest of his days in Vermontville, and he's buried in Union Cemetery, that quiet little cemetery you drive past on Route 3 heading for Plattsburgh, zipping past, not even thinking about it. He's right in there, and so is his wife. The work to educate the public and celebrate the legacy of black settlers and abolitionists in the Adirondacks is ongoing. Martha Swan also spoke at the recent APA meeting. Swan is the founder and executive director of John Brown Lives, a project named after the legendary white abolitionists who owned a farm near Lake Placid. Through this work, 
that others have done and that we've done together, I have begun to believe in the unifying potential of our history, the unifying potential of rolling up our sleeves, digging deep into the horrors, the terrors, the tragedies, the violence, the crime of so much of our history. Swan helped organize the Juneteenth celebration at the John Brown Farm. Then in August, the farm is planning to host a long table dinner and discussion with leading scholars such as Nell Painter. The event is an effort to bring together diverse people and perspectives to talk about the history and the future of the Adirondack Park. Reporting in Saranac Lake, I'm Emily Russell. You're listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm Jim Lavoulis, in for David Gestina. A report was recently published about the Olympic Regional Development Authority's role and future in New York's Catskills and Adirondacks regions. The story raises questions about state investments in the facilities that date back to the 1980 Winter Olympics, the state's ongoing support of ORTA, and how the region views the impact of winter sports today. For a different perspective, WAMC's Ian Pickus spoke with Mike Pratt, ORTA's president and CEO. Uh, What do you want people to know about ORTA's scope, its mission, and what it does? Well, the Olympic Authority is an economic development engine. Uh, We're spread out through three counties of New York State, uh, two in the Adirondacks, one in the Catskills. Uh, We have about 1,500 employees that are working hard, trying to uh, do a good job. And we've been incredibly busy transforming ourselves and uh, being very successful right now. How do you define that success? What do you mean specifically? Well, there's any number of uh, metrics. We've... uh, uh, modernized our facilities. We've increased our visitation. We've increased our sales. Um, we've decreased our uh, accidents at, at the facilities, improved our uh, experience modifications for workers' compensation. Um, it, the list goes on and on. We've been uh, um, just really transforming the whole operations and uh, um, the, the staff have been tremendous because it's really easy to make a difference when the uh, goals and values you're trying to achieve match those of the uh, staff. Why is it important to keep these facilities going in your view? Well, um, you know, certainly the, the heritage of uh, what we do is spread throughout the uh, communities that we serve. Um, the ski areas, uh, the first ski patrol in the country, and one of the first uh, commercial ski areas in the country was in North Creek at the Ski Bowl, uh, where Gore uh, is operating now. Uh, the first chairlift in New York was installed at Bel Air Mountain, and certainly Whiteface, uh, home of the 1980 Olympics and uh, uh, greatest vertical in the East, is powerful. Uh, in Lake Placid, uh, the Olympic facilities are all uh, uh, two-time Olympic hosts go- dating back to the 1932 Olympics and the first international competitions in 1921. 
and uh, our transformations have made them all uh, relevant in sport. They've made them all year-round facilities and, and in demand, and the uh, uh, national governing bodies of sport are uh, taking advantage of the facilities for training, and, and we're hosting a lot of premier, premier and prestigious events. Can you explain or break down uh, the balance between the facilities being used by athletes and the role of spectators in some of these sports? Well, what we've done is really we've placed the elite athletes right next to the recreational enthusiasts and uh, have provided great spots for the spectators also so that um, these sports can be uh, marketed and branded and the experiences can be improved upon. Uh, the evolution of sports where, uh, uh, you know, cross-country skiing, for instance, is, is now uh, um, made to be uh, watched and made for TV and um, made for spectators by having smaller courses that have more uh, laps on them so that the visual impact is, is very profound and, and exciting. So what is the vision then for the future? You did mention past Olympics, uh, but if people um, who have you know heard the past report I referenced in the introduction or are just thinking about further investments in this uh, infrastructure, what can they expect, you know, return on, on taxpayer dollar in the future? Well, right, right now, as I said, we're uh, generating record revenues. It's very exciting. Um, we're putting that revenue right back into the operation. And uh, um, we're, we're hosting some very prestigious events. Our, our revenue typically comes from the, uh, the recreational enthusiasts at the ski areas, uh, as well as um, you know, public skating and, and different operations. You know, we, we also operate the conference center in Lake Placid, the Olympic Museum in Lake Placid, and we operate the Veterans Memorial Highway at Whiteface. So, so a lot of uh, opportunities to uh, show off what we do and uh, provide great experiences for the customers. Is, uh, in your view, a Winter Olympics that includes these facilities in the future on the table? Well, well, right now it's not on the schedule, but certainly we do have some great prestigious events on the schedule. We're hosting a World Cup for Luge in December. Uh, we just hosted the World Championships for synchronized figure skating uh, last April. Um, we're, we hosted the World Championships for bobsled skeleton in February of 2025. And uh, we're hosting the first... Uh, um, biathlon World Cups uh, in Lake Placid in, in about uh, 25 years in uh, uh, 2026. So uh, a lot of great um, prestigious events that are coming back because of these facilities. And we've had uh, t the United States national teams take advantage of this. So um, we're hosting the national teams for uh, biathlon right now, as well as some of the Nordic athletes. Uh, bobsled skeleton are in Lake Placid right now as our luge. So it's a lot of uh, training is going on and getting ready for the event season. Let's talk for a minute about the World University Games. Would you say they were a success? Were they what you were hoping for? You know, they, they were a tremendous success. We had hosted 
uh, 86 different events, and the field to play uh, was just outstanding for every single sport, whether it was on ice or on snow. Uh, we didn't have a single controversy with results, timing, and scoring. And uh, what made this even more impressive was that right after it, the Super Bowl came on and the sod was falling apart when the players uh, stepped on the logo in the center of the field. They were slipping. And then there was a controversial penalty right at the end of the game. So I just thought that uh, our staff did a tremendous job preparing the, uh, the fields of play and um, having the systems in place for the results, timing, and scoring. And, um, it, you know, we had some really elite athletes. We got some tremendous uh, airtime uh, across the world and, and a lot of, lot of uh, inquiries for more events and, um, and more opportunities for training. So as we were preparing to speak, um, a new study was released uh, showing that the authority, your authority, generates about $342 million a year and uh, impacts thousands of jobs and so on and so forth. And I just wonder if you could uh, break down your top line findings uh, from that report, which uh, it was like 38 pages, so I don't have time to talk about all of it. But uh, (laughs) what stood out to you? But yeah, you you hit the uh, nail right on the head, Ian. The um, annual economic impact that the authority and our guests are providing is closing in on $342 million a year. Um, It's certainly uh, throughout our regions of New York State and Essex County, Warren County and Ulster County and and the surrounding counties um, are... Uh, impact creates uh, 3,400 jobs and about 25 million in state and local tax revenue. So, so a lot of uh, great, great highlights right there uh, that just uh, reinforce what we're doing. And we hosted over uh, 1.1 million visitors this past year. So, uh, um, we've had a chance to really uh, show off the Adirondacks and the Catskills, our sports in New York State to a lot of different people. And there's a nice uh, demographic map of the United States just showing where the guests came from. And and it's uh, uh, really spread out all over uh, the country where they're coming from to uh, take advantage of our operations. Do you agree that the facilities and the economy around them face uh, a future danger from climate change as we've seen winters with, you know, much less snow in recent years and and that sort of thing? Uh Oh, climate change is a real threat. And that's why we've been focused for many years on uh, sustainability, improving our efficiencies and our operations. And we have some uh, tremendously efficient infrastructure. We have a uh, tremendous amount of infrastructure at all our facilities from uh, electrical distribution lines and transformers to the uh, water and wastewater systems, but uh, the snowmaking systems and the uh, refrigeration systems for the ice uh, facilities. It's a lot of infrastructure and uh, it is very efficient and we're uh, taking care of it well. Um, Let me go to another subject. Uh, There was some conjecture about 
uh, locals within the Lake Placid Village, local businesses feeling they did not uh, get the economic impact they were maybe hoping for from the World University Games. Uh, Can you speak to the relationship between the authority and the facilities and then the localities? Yeah, we we have a great relationship with uh, locals, uh, local businesses and municipalities. Uh, in the Lake Placid Olympic region was the first regional lead gold for community uh, in, in 2019. And we partnered with the Lake Placid Central School, the village of Lake Placid and the town of North Elba to acquire that designation. And it was the Olympic Authority's efforts at Gore Mountain and Whiteface Mountain that allowed us to uh, satisfy the regional requirements. And uh, right now we're looking to expand that region to include the township of Wilmington also. So when when you heard that people uh, and business owners felt they you know, they didn't get exactly what they wanted out of an event like that. What was your reaction? It, it, you know, it was certainly disappointing, you know, but I think it was the way the question was asked, too. If they had asked if they had a um, a good month of February, they would have said probably said it was a record month. Our events right after the World University Games, we hosted the biggest event we've hosted since the 1980 Olympics, which was the World Cup ski jump, where we had close to 7,500 people on Saturday and Sunday at the ski jumps watching the first World Cup in North America in over 21 years. And, uh, you know, this was a very exciting. Uh, people came from as far away as Las Vegas to uh, watch this event. And, and uh, right after that, we hosted the NCAA National Championships for Alpine and Nordic skiing. Uh, then the ECAC Division One Men's Hockey Championships, and then the uh, uh, World Championships for synchronized figure skating in Lake Placid. So, so uh, you know, if if there was a disappointment for uh, a couple days, it was certainly um, turned around very quickly by the next uh, uh, few events. My colleague's story also raised the question of continued state support for the authority. Uh, and, you know, everything in Albany is is subject to, you know, political whims and who's in office at the time. Uh, I wonder if you could address that question. Well, certainly, um, you know, as I said, we are uh, in the economic development portfolio of New York State. We, we do, uh, as this r- report that was just released today uh, emphasizes, have a tremendous economic impact for New York State in our regions. And, uh um, there, you know, we're constantly analyzing what's appropriate, what's uh, um, the next stage. You know, we, we focused really getting our fields of play ready for the World University Games, and, and that was a finite uh, um, target for a lot of that. But there were certain components and facilities and infrastructure that um, wasn't necessary to be upgraded for those games that we're trying to address now. Um, you know, as I said, the skiers are having record uh, years and are a tremendous growth curve, and there's a lot of infrastructure there that needs to replace, be replaced and uh, upgraded. But but uh, it's something that we realize that, um, it, you know, there's a, a lot of needs throughout the state, and, and we're one player, and we try to uh, – be respectful and certainly be appropriate. 
Lastly, what what can you do or what would you like to see to um, attract more visitors to these facilities in the non-winter months? Well, that's great, Ian, because a lot of our upgrades folk did focus on allowing um, more uh, summer operations. Uh, the training facilities in particular at the Olympic venues, uh, th those were really just uh, winter month venues before. And now, as I said, we have uh, USA Biathlon, USA Bobsled Skeleton, USA Luge, and USA Nordic utilizing our facilities in the summer. Uh, in August, we're hosting a two-week camp for uh, the uh, USA women's hockey that's going to end with three games against uh, uh, Team Canada. So it's uh, pretty exciting to see the response of these in the off-season. You know, at the ski areas, um, we're trying to uh, bring more guests in by uh, providing some front-country solutions to avoid some back-country problems and turn these facilities into hiking centers so where we have the uh, parking areas and, and bathrooms and retail stores and restaurants and uh, try, try to welcome the guests in that are learning, uh, want to learn about the wilderness experience and hiking and give them some uh, uh, areas to hike that are uh, more appropriate for their learning before they go into the wilderness. Um, Mike, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you would like people to know? Yeah, you know, we went, the Olympic facilities in particular went 40 years with uh, no upgrades, and now we've transformed those into some modern facilities. Our, our finance department had their offices in a locker room in the 1980 rink, and now uh, uh, we've, we've turned that locker space back over to the programs to use. So, so I think this, this whole transformation has enhanced the experience for the, uh, the users, for the spectators, uh, for the staff, they've just been uh, great with following through and um, embracing the challenges, working right through a pandemic. We did we did all this without missing an operating season, and, and we are on a tremendous growth curve. Mike Pratt is the president and CEO of the Olympic Regional Development Authority in New York State. Uh, Mike, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Okay, and thank you very much for having me. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2325. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jim Lavoulis.